Back in 92, I wrote the following paragraph as a preface to a Murphy Anderson interview, and I wanted to read it today because I think it provides a good foundation and introduction to what we're here to talk about. <clears throat> Interviewer's note, uh, when I first began purchasing DC Comics from the newsstand during the middle 1950s, I noticed that several artists seemed to centrally define the DC look. I loved the exquisite inking detail of Russ Heath. I was enthralled over the dynamic lines of Joe Kubert. I wondered at the futuristic cities of Carmen and Fontino. The clean, nearly photographic style of Gil Kane took my breath away. But for me, one artist's work was the most compelling. That artist was the great Murphy Anderson. Even now, when I stare at the original Atomic Knights art page hanging in my den, I never failed to marvel at the unbelievable level of detail in each beautifully rendered panel. I'm still in awe of the intricacy of line, the placement of shadow, and the truly severe composition of the total page. I'm sorry, I'm tearing up a little bit here. <clears throat> For me, Murphy Anderson's work is the apex of the Silver Age. From the first time I ever journeyed through the pages of Strange Adventures and Mystery in Space to this very day, Murphy Anderson continues to be far and away my personal favorite. But beyond his immeasurable contribution to comics, I learned something else about Murphy that he himself would not tell you. Even with all the recent media attention and notoriety, amazingly, Murphy Anderson continues to be soft-spoken, humble, and anxious to make sure everyone else gets their fair share of credit. I have found this to be a rare quality among many comic book creators. At the age of 10, I loved Murphy Anderson for his work. At the age of 43, I deeply appreciate him for who he is. Gary Carter, April 3rd, 1992. And given that, now Gary Carter at the age of 63 has the unbelievable privilege to be up here on this DS one more time with Murphy Anderson. So Murphy, let's get started. Back to the bin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. Blah. Oh, sorry, came in a little late. I'm Paul Spataro, and as you could hear, I am here with my good buddy, Bookless Bill Robinson. What are you going to do tonight, Paul? Same thing that we do every night. Take over the world. Narf! And we are here with Scott H. Gardner. Hey! How's it going? It's going all right. <laughs> and tonight we are here to pay tribute to one of the legends of comics who you may or may not be totally familiar with because he is uh, someone of long ago, effectively. Murphy Anderson, who passed away, I guess as we record this, he passed away about a month ago. Oh, has that been that long already? I think so. You know, we should probably do our homework and know these things before we come in. Well, we're here to celebrate his life, not his death. This is true. So I don't want to get fixated on his death. And I have to tell you, as as familiar as I am with the name Murphy Anderson, and as much as I've seen books and I see his name on them and it's like, oh yeah, Murphy Anderson, I am not a devotee of his in that I can't name a lot of his different work for you. 
and I don't know that I would necessarily pick his style out from others. Especially if you look at the two books we're covering tonight, the style has dramatically changed over the years between the two books. Yeah, I, I, I would agree on that, because I am the newbie, unfortunately, to Mr. Anderson. No Matrix joke implied there. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm coming in. This is the first time I've really... I, I may have seen his work, but I didn't really take notice of it or be able to pick him out. And the two that I did notice that the... I would assume one was early in his career and the other was more towards the end of his career. And you can see a big difference between these two books. Yeah, and, and I think it's it's purely style of the times, house style, uh, as far as my book goes, which is the earlier one. And then the book Scott picked is later on. And I think that's when, you know, they were allowed to kind of spread their wings a little bit more and do what they what they liked as opposed to having to fit the house style. Right. And I think you see as as we go through it, I think you'll see an improvement in the artwork you know, not just a change, but an improvement. I think you'll see a more sophisticated-looking artwork in the second book. But I think probably I'm going to really put you on the spot, and you're going to tell me, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. But, uh, Scott, I think you're probably the most knowledgeable of the three of us as far as his work goes. Well, I was kind of holding back because of a couple of things. Um, for one, I did look it up real quick here. Just uh, As you said, we, we want to concentrate on his life and his work, not his death. But he did pass away on October 22nd. So as we record this, that's what, about three weeks ago? Something like that? Anyway, just to, to throw that out there. Um, you know, it's funny because I, I, I would never consider myself an expert um, on his career or anything like that. And it's funny because uh, in preparation for this to to pick a book, because several books came to my mind, but I really wanted to pick a book that would really be very Murphy Anderson. And I feel like I did a good job with that. I'm not ready to reveal the book I picked just yet. But I was Despite looking at what you posted on Facebook today. Right. Well, I post <laughs> I, I um was looking over his body of work in Mike's Amazing World. And now I can pick out his style pretty readily. Um, I've, I've been a fan of his for a long time. I really enjoy his work and everything. But here's the funny thing. I, and I, I would assume a lot of people probably of our age range are probably in the same boat that if they can, if they do know who he is and they can pick him out, they probably think of him as a Superman guy. I know that I always have. I've thought of him as, you know, the other half of the equation, which is Kurt Swan. You know, th those, you know, that was the guy he was most associated with. You know, they, they were such a team that they, you know, uh, uh, spawned the term Swanderson, you know, which was the mm -hmm. team that, that they made up. So it was funny to me to actually look over a listing of his body of work on Mike's Amazing World and find that I, I don't know the exact issue where he first did Superman, but just you know, on a, on a quick glance here, I'm looking that the first thing that is listed chronologically on Mike's Amazing World by Murphy Anderson is he was on he was the artist on a Marvel book called Suspense, uh, issue number seven. It's one of the very few, very, very few non-DC works listed in his works. And that was in March of 1951. And then there's a just years and years and years of space stuff that he did. He worked on, for DC, he worked on Mystery in Space and Strange Adventures. And he did a lot of work with space characters like Chris KL99, um, Captain Comet and uh, Phantom Stranger, things like that. And 
so it's funny to think that the thing that I know him from, the thing that I think he's arguably most identified with, again, at least people from our age range, is his work on Superman. Yet the earliest thing that I could find in the Superman, not even Superman himself necessarily, but just in the Superman family, is there's a Legion story here. There's a Supergirl story. I'm like I say, I'm just doing a quick scan here. Jimmy Olsen, and this is in uh, late '69 and, and early 1970. So that's a range of you know 18, 19 years where he was building his career, working on everything but Superman at DC. So it's funny that he's so associated with that character, yet you know all of that work is relatively late in his career you know he'd been around a good long while before he actually became associated with superman but then once he did of course you know the the bulk of his resume from that point on is superman related um he did a lot of superman stuff and of course that's what i knew him from was his superman work and uh it's one of those things where now i I actually want to go back and seek this older stuff especially the older science fiction stuff um, just because it's stuff that I'm not really, you know, that familiar with. I never read much of it. I don't know that it's been highly reprinted or anything like that. So I'd be curious to check it out because I've I've long been a fan of this guy. I really like him. And one of the reasons I really wanted to do this episode is, you know, when you pitch the idea of, hey, you know, Murphy Anderson's passed away. Why don't we do, you know, a, a tribute and and talk about his work and everything was that I actually got to meet him. It was one of, if not the first, no, it wasn't my first convention, now that I think back on it. What it was is it was the first convention I ever went to on my own, like where I had my own car, I was out of the house and everything, and I and I drove myself down to um, Ithaca, New York. And this is when I was in the Air Force, I was stationed in um, Rome, New York, which is more or less dead center of the state of New York. And I drove down to Ithaca for an Ithacon uh, that was going on, on on this weekend and went down there. And I don't know back then if if they published like a list of who was going to be there or anything like that. I just I knew that the convention was going to be going on. And I went to the convention and here was this guy who was sitting there doing, you know, doing signings and also doing sketches. And he may have even been working on something at the time. I can't remember. But he was doing something drawing-wise where you could watch him. And as I watched him draw, and he was, an, you know, even at that time, he was an older fella and everything. And I watched him and, and was listening to, you know, people talk to him and, and watching him sketch. I, it suddenly dawned on me, I'm like, oh my God, that's Kurt Swan. <laughs> it's what I thought, you know, because their styles are so linked and everything. And then I don't know how it eventually came about. I, I don't remember anymore how I eventually realized or discovered that that he was actually Murphy Anderson. Um, but, you know, I did learn that. And I, at the time, I, I was probably 19, maybe 20 at most. And... So I hadn't, you know, I didn't know he was going to be there. I hadn't brought anything for him to sign or what. So I remember running down to the dealer's room and just buying some comics. So, you know, I'd have stuff for him to sign. And I know I, I got him to sign. I couldn't tell you the issue numbers now, but it's that that great. It's a classic comic. It, it, you'll know the one I'm talking about. It's 
the one it's an issue of action comics where superman is flying straight at us the reader and the background is actually a photo of a city you know oh, the one I know i'm talking about but yeah absolutely and that's, it's a, that's, it's a, it's a, a neil adams one. yeah it is it's a classic and it's neil adams but it's inked by um anderson and i think he does inks on the interior um and there was a couple others i got a superman i think it's I want to say it's 199, I think, where he races the Flash. Um, that was also, you know, there was work on that by Anderson. There was there were several other books like that. And I went up there, and he was very gracious. He signed everything. But the really cool thing, the thing that stands out in my memory was that at one point, because nobody was really coming up and talking to him, or if they were, it was pretty much, here, sign this, and then that was it. I got a chance to just hang out with him. I mean, to a point where he eventually, you know, asked me to just sit down, you know, because I guess, you know, he was trying to work for one thing, but I think, you know, he just got tired of looking up. He was like, here, have a seat. So, you know, I sat down with him and we just sat down and just shot the breeze for what felt like a long time. I, I'd, I'd love to know how long it actually was because I don't remember now, but at the time it felt like it was a long time where I just, I had his attention and, and just got a chance to just talk to the guy. And that was really, you know, accepting the fact that I had met um, Roger Stern, you know, who I would learn later was always the guy that actually put on Ithacon. I, I didn't know that at the time that I was going to Ithacons. I would learn that years later. But, you know, except for the fact that I'd met, say, Roger Stern, I briefly got a chance to meet um, Jim Shooter and a couple other Marvel guys. I can't remember, you know, Marvel's 80s guys, but except for those guys. Uh, Murphy Anderson was like the first real creator I ever met. You know what I mean? Like really like kind of heavy hitter creator, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And he really set the tone in so many ways for what I came to expect of meeting not only comics professionals, but celebrities. And he's, you know, he's always been kind of that, that mark for me, you know, and he's what I judge all my other encounters with celebrities by my encounter with him. And I guess it's fair to say that he spoiled me, you know, because I, I, like I say, I got to just hang out with him. I got to talk to him about things. He was very, very generous with his time and just a lot of fun because he, you know, he'd answer questions and he'd ask you questions. And he seemed to genuinely care about the people that stopped to see him as human beings, you know, and I remember him asking, you know, just a lot of discovery questions, you know, about not just me, but the other people that he talked to. And that's, that's just really cool. And everything I've ever read about, I mean, I've never heard a, a, a you know, a, a negative story about the guy, you know, I never heard, you know, a, a tawdry story or anything like that. He was always, you know, even when he passed away and, and people were, eulogizing him you know everybody said the same thing you know it, it always came down to the same thing that he was just a gentleman you know and he really was he was really really cool and uh i remember him specifically asking me um because i had run down to the dealer's room to buy those comics and then come back up i can remember him picking my brain about what was down in the dealer's room because he'd been stuck up there all day at his table and hadn't had a chance to go down there. And there were actually certain comics he was looking for. And it was that remembrance of that bit of the conversation that actually spawned me picking out the book that I brought tonight. But we'll talk more about that later on. But anyway, that's 
my fuzzy, you know, it's, it, it was a long time ago, so my memories are really fuzzy. I wish I could remember specifically what we talked about and everything, but I just, that was my lasting impression of him. It's just, what a nice old man, you know? And what's and funny back then he wasn't even all that old. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm, I'm probably fast approaching the age that he was then, but, you know, at the <laughs> time, you know, he was, you know, he was a lot older than I was, and that, that was just kind of my impression was, you know, what a nice old guy. But he was. He was just he was a, a real gentleman and just a delight to talk to. You know, he was uh, he was just happy to, to talk old comics. And I just thought that was great. So anyway, that's that was my my brush with uh, with Murphy Anderson. But I I really was saddened, you know, when uh, when the news came that he passed, I saw it on uh, Facebook early the morning that, uh, you know, after it had happened and everything, I saw it was posted by um, by Paul Levitz. And uh, it just really bummed me out because I was like, oh, you know, I, I, I hate it when we lose the greats, you know, especially and, uh, who, who gave you a little bit of a personal touch like that. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, I, I did feel a personal connection with him, you know, just because of that memory. So, well, I mean, the first professional I ever had any real experience with, and I've talked about this before, was Steve Gerber. Uh, mm-hmm. Around 1976 or so. Oh, 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 OK. You meant artist. OK. All right. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, I just meant professional, comics professional. Oh, I thought you meant the old Steve Gerber wasn't an artist. Okay. And, uh, but like that, I always, I always remember he was pretty cool to us. I mean, at the time, Gerber was probably 25. Right. And me and my friends were, I think, 14, 13, whatever. And, and you know, we didn't get what he was talking about. What he was talking about was, was more sophisticated and more drug-induced than our minds really kind of right. comprehended at that age. But he spent the time, he talked to us, he was cool to us, he was nice to us. And when he passed away, I, I felt a little bit of a loss there as well. And, and for exactly that reason. The same, I, so I, can, I, I don't have that experience with Murphy Anderson, but I know what you're talking about. Right. So it, it is a loss, especially when, when, they, when they give you a fun childhood memory like that. Although yours, you were a little older, you were, uh, not, if you were in the service already, you really weren't a child anymore. No. Damn that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but like I said, my, my experience with him is, uh, is like I think of him as almost being eponymous, that every way you look, there's Murphy Anderson stuff uh, in the Golden Age, not in the Golden Age, excuse me, in the Silver Age particularly. Right. And, right. and yeah. you know, again, it's not stuff that I've studied, but it just always seemed to be there. And I always appreciate it. To me, it's, it's Kurt Swan is at that same level, Dick Dillon. There's a bunch of guys like that whose whose work is all over the place, and and you know Jim Aparo, uh, and and to me that that their names just say DC Comics to me. Exactly. Yeah. Well, see now now I'm familiar with Kurt Swan, but now you said that he and Anderson were a team. Were they like penciler inker? Um, I, I, I'm gonna how were they I'm gonna read up? to you. Uh, I'm gonna read to you two paragraphs from his Wikipedia page just because it kind of touched on some of the stuff Scott said. Okay. So, Anderson succeeded artist and co-creator Carmine Infantino on the superhero feature Captain Comet, beginning with the story The Girl from the Diamond Planet in Straight Edge Adventures No. 12, cover dated September 1951. Years later, Anderson and John Broom created the feature Atomic Nights in Strange Adventure 117, June of 1960, which Anderson later described as his favorite assignment. Anderson and writer Gardner Fox launched the Hawkman series, in May 1964, and introduced the Zatanna character in issue 4, November of 1964. Comics historian Les Daniels noted that Hawkman really took off when artist Murphy Anderson took over. 
Anderson came into his own with his elegantly or ornamental version of the Winged Wonder. The Spectre was revived by Fox and Anderson in Showcase number 60, February 1966, and was given his own series in December 1967. In the 1960s, Anderson proposed that comic pages be drawn at 10 by 15 inches rather than the prevailing standard of 12 by 8 inches, which allowed two pages to be photographed at the same time and subsequently became the industry standard. Anderson designed the costume of Adam Strange with his frequent collaborator, penciler Kurt Swan. The pair's artwork on Superman and Action Comics in the 1970s came to be called Swanderson by fans. He often hid his initials somewhere within the stories he inked. In the early 1970s, DC assigned Anderson, among other artists, to redraw the heads of Jack Kirby's renditions of Superman and Jimmy Olsen, featuring Kirby's versions, excuse me, fearing Kirby's versions were too different from the established images of the characters. In 1972, he drew Wonder Woman for the cover of the first issue of Ms. Magazine. In 1973, he established Murphy Anderson Visual Concepts, which provided color separations and lettering for comic books. So that's, again, two, two paragraphs from his biography on Wikipedia. But I think it gives you a little bit of a scope of how much and how influential he really was. Yep. Mm. So yeah, effectively, actually, Swan did the penciling and he did the inking to give you an incredibly long answer to your question. If you <laughs> look fine. at issues of Action and Superman from roughly late 1970 to about to about uh, mid-1974, early 1970, like spring 1974, he's ever-present on Superman during that time. I mean, doing, bouncing back and forth, but also, you know, often doing both between action and Superman. So that's why, to me, that's why I had that associate. That's like my, that's when I was coming up as a kid, you know, and discovering Superman and buying Superman and uh, paying attention to, to, you know, Superman from that era. So that's what I knew him from. But I mean, yeah, he's got a massive body of work. But not, not only oh, a massive body of work, but from the way, you know, from that, uh, that article I just read, mm-hmm. he, he was also in his own way, in an unappreciated way, probably, pretty innovative. He came up yeah. with the, the, new, the industry stand, standard on page sizes. He created costumes. You know, he, he did some uh, some things that, that are that separated him from the rest of the community. I wish I could go back in time and, and talk to him again, you know, at, you know, like that, that time that I did get to meet him. And I'd be very curious. I'm always curious with these guys that they're, they're lasting legacy as a as an artist is one thing or another you know but then you look at their body of work and they're like wow you know this guy could have been anything because i i think he's going to be remembered historically as an inker i think that's what most everybody associates him with especially again you know his reputation as being kurt swan's i i would say definitive inker i really would i would Um, agree with that you know that, that that's what he was was he was an inker but I mean, the guy was a hell of an artist in his own right, and he does. As I'm looking over his uh, his credits here, he does have a lot of credit as either the outright artist or just the penciler on a lot of his early stuff. Right up to a point where all of a sudden 
it's it's like he flipped a switch and all of a sudden he became an inker and he would still do you know he would still be the artist from time to time but once he uh he did the inker you know became an inker it's that especially when he got to superman that just kind of became what he was and i'm curious about that i'm wondering was it because it paid better. It was quicker. He could get more work, you know, because a lot of those guys, you have to remember back during this era that, you know, that's what it was all about. It was about, you know, making that paycheck and, and putting food on the table, you know. And so if they could be faster and make more money and get more gigs, you know, doing this or that, then that's what they would do versus maybe what they really were talented at or what they really wanted to do. And so I'd be curious to know you know, what the actual story is with that, because, um, again, you know, I, I hope to, to draw a mental picture for the listeners when we get to my book, that one of the reasons I picked the book that I picked was that I remembered him having a fondness for the character. And I remember him working on the particular story that I picked, but I had forgotten that he didn't just work on it. He was, he was the guy. I mean, he was the artist. I thought he inked it, but he didn't just ink it. He he was the outright artist, and I had forgotten that. And seeing his his actual work, you know, not uh, affected by any other artist, where he was the actual artist, it's just it's it's really impressive that you know he would ever allow himself to be you know, and I'm saying this in air quotes, of course, but just an inker. You know what I mean? It it almost seems a, a shame in in a certain way that uh, almost like a waste of his talents. You know what I mean? To to let himself be uh, become known as just like the second half of of that equation of Swan and Anderson. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, but I think I think in that era, the ego didn't factor into it the way it does now. Right, and I think you know to a large extent this was. For a lot of these guys, not that they weren't artistic and not that they didn't put themselves into their craft, but this was a job for them. Mm-hmm. You know, it was this wasn't like the same passion project that I think it is for some later creators. Right. So, you know, I think it's kind of like, you know, that's the job. They ask me to ink it, I ink it. They want me to pencil it, I'll pencil it. I don't think right. there's the same level of uh, autonomy or even like, again, to use the word ego as... as as there is nowadays. Right. And I'm not sure that the paycheck was dramatically different for an inker as opposed to a, a, a penciler. I mean, I really have no basis for that knowledge, but I just... But not necessarily that it was that it was higher or lower, but if he could do more work, you know, if, do, if he could, you know, essentially if he could knock work out faster as an inker as opposed to being the the penciler or the outright artist i'm wondering if that had something because i've i I couldn't tell you who i heard that in association with but i have heard that before that some of these guys that actually were great artists in their own right allowed themselves if again i'm saying that in air quote allowed themselves to become just simply inkers because they could work faster that way, meaning that they would get more pages, meaning they would get more work. I think some of the speed is less in the actual drawing process and more in the conceptualizing the page. Mm-hmm. I think when, when you're the penciler, you have to figure out, you know, okay, what angle am I going to go for? What, you know, uh, how, how far away? Let me, let me get the, the line set for some, uh, you know, for the building line and, and all of that stuff. Whereas the Inca comes in and it's, for lack of a better word, a little bit more brainless. 
they, they can kind of, you know, especially if somebody didn't, didn't do very loose pencils, if somebody did, you know, fairly tight pencils. Uh, right. You know, I, I hate to, to call it tracing, but sometimes I think when it's done right, that's what it is. Because some of these inkers, and, and I I think it goes all over the map, because you have some inkers who, who take a very simple artist style and, and impose their own style on it and make it better. But you have some who impose their own style and then the original artist's concepts get lost in the process. I think, uh, what's his name, uh, Klaus Janssen, when he worked with Sal Buscema, we've, we've seen several instances of that uh, on this show. I think he actually elevated Buscema's art and, and made it into something, you know, that was really, really good. On the other hand, I think some inkers who imposed their own style on Val Meyrick's pencils took away some of the beauty of his art and, and made it more pedestrian than it should be. So it goes both ways. Right. Uh, you know, for Val Meyrick, I think he would have been better off just having somebody who was a tracer and would just take those pencils and, and just clean them up as as drawn. Whereas, you know, other guys, you need a little bit more of a heavy hand on them to, to create that atmosphere. I don't right. know if anything I'm saying here makes sense, but in my mind... No, no, I, I, no I, I follow what you're saying, and I, I do agree with you. I think, uh, I think you've, you're on to something there. Anyway, uh, I think it may be a good time to look at some books. Sure. Okay, we have two books today, because I have a book, and Scott, you have a book, right? I do. And Bill? Hey, uh, so... Uh, yeah, never mind. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and in uh, fairness, we, we, we all know I like to beat on Bill, but in fairness, he wasn't going to be on tonight, and at the last minute he became available, so he didn't have time to prep a book. So nobody yell at poor Bill. You know, if if we, like, shipped your guys' names together, we could call you Spardner. Spardner. Yeah. Mm, no. No? Uh, how about... <laughs> or Gartaro? Gartaro. There you and, go. But then, uh, yeah, like, then, then you Gartaro sound like Gartaro sounds like, like we should be like, getting a sword and putting a big G in. <laughs> or you could be like, you you sound like some big daikaiju monster. Gartaro! Ah! Like a big giant moth. Uh, it reminds me of that Star Trek episode where Sulu's running around with a sword. Oh, that's, that's... Is it Sulu always running around with a sword? Oh, wait, never mind. Sorry. Sorry about that. <laughs> anyway, I chose, I decided to look for a Silver Age book. For Mr. Anderson, uh, and I wanted one that he penciled and inked because I wanted it to be a true showing of his art. So I picked Showcase number 55, which came out in April of 1965, had a 12-cent price tag, and it featured Dr. Fate and Our Man. The cover, which is by the aforementioned Mr. Anderson, shows Solomon Grundy on a moonlit night in the swamp. He's holding Dr. Fate over his head, and Dr. Fate is very rigid. And not in a good or fun way. He's ready to hurl the good doctor at our man, who's rushing towards him with his right fist fist extended. And down at the bottom, there's a note telling us that the Golden Age Green Lantern is a special guest in this issue. The story is titled Solomon Grundy Goes on a Rampage, and it's written by Gardner Fox, penciled and inked by Murphy Anderson, and edited by Julius Schwartz. The book opens with a splash page showing Solomon Grundy in the center with Dr. Fate and Our Man on each side of him with an explanation as to who the two heroes are. And you got to keep in mind that this is this is early in the Silver Age and early enough so that some of these Golden Age heroes might kind of be unfamiliar to uh, to the to the young readers. And the whole concept of Earth 1 and Earth 2 is probably also uh, unfamiliar to a lot of them at this point. 
So they needed to give a little explanation so that people would know what's going on. Otherwise, they might get confused, especially when you're dealing with a book that has Golden Age Green Lantern. And meanwhile, you have Hal Jordan going around in the other books. So there's a prologue explaining that Grundy is not real life, but a weird distortion of it, created by a strange chemical reaction of sunlight beating down on the decayed vegetation of soggy swampland. Now, if that was reality, I'd be having a Solomon Grundy come up in my backyard almost every day. So he went on to become the leader of a criminal band and eventually came into conflict with the, conflict with the Golden Age Green Lantern, which resulted in him being put into an energy bubble back in 1947. So that I guess that makes this the first post-Golden Age appearance of Grundy. Chapter 1 opens with the Emerald Energy Bubble crashing to Earth and shattering, freeing a hate-filled Grundy who makes his way back to Slaughter Swamp and dives right in. Cut to Old Salem, where Kent Nelson and his wife Inza are there, and a crystal ball is showing something going on, which gets Inza to go and get Kent's super suit, and Dr. Fate goes to the swamp and reconstructs the Emerald Globe while swearing to a bit while swearing to a bad movie starring Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty. And if anybody's missing that, he swears to Ishtar. You turn over all the cards right now. <laughs> While this is going on, Rex Tyler, super junkie, has a jar of performance-enhancing jelly beans and brings one with him to respond to an alarm from the swamp. Viagra? What is this? <laughs> if, if our man keeps That's why he's called more our than man. four hours, call him hospital. <laughs> so in, in his alter ego of our man, he confronts Grandi, who starts to pummel him. Now, I, I see, along. see, wait, stop right there. Stop our man right there. Bam, bam, bam. See... He should be wearing that. He should be rocking that that Hyperion type girdle that Doctor Fate is. Yeah. And he wouldn't have got. He wouldn't. You know. He he could have took that punch. Yeah, you're probably right. All right, sorry. So as he's getting pummeled, Doctor Fate comes along and directs swamp trees to attack Grundy, but Grundy breaks free and uses a tree as a bat against Fate. Fate imprisons Grundy in a giant ice cube, but Grundy is able to break free. In response, Fate comes up with a plan. To allow Grund Grundy to grab him and freeze Grundy with electrical energy. Yeah. Hmm. But while this is happening, Our Man recovers and thinks Fate needs help. Unfortunately, this frees Grundy and drains Our Man of all his PEDs. Ending Chapter 1. Chapter 2 opens with Grundy slamming the two heroes together and wandering off. He, he starts to let off a red glow, which somehow causes all wood objects to float after him. He makes his way a local bank and breaks in to lure the Green Lantern to him. His plan works and the Lantern engages him and quickly reforms a new energy bubble around him. But this time, Grundy uses an axe handle to shatter the bubble and attacks the Lantern with his wooden items. And if you don't know already, this Green Lantern was vulnerable to items made of wood for some reason. Ow, I got a splinter. <laughs> That's it, I'm done. <laughs> and so, so he knocks the Lantern from the sky and catches him unconscious as Dr. Fate arrives on the scene. Grundy tries to use his enchanted wood weapons, but Fate is able to reshape them into a giant mallet, which he tries to use on Grundy. Our Man then arrives and takes a new steroid, but somehow both Fate and Our Man are overcome with a desire to destroy each other at just that moment. And so we move on to chapter three. The two heroes take the offensive, 
Fate erects a magical curtain while Our Man leaps through it, right fist first, catching Fate in his helmeted jaw, with both tumbling to the ground in an unconscious heap as a grinning grunt he ambles off carrying the Green Lantern. As he does, he runs into his old gangster buddies and tells them what had happened to him. Now this is, again, this is about 18, 19 years from his last appearance, but these gangsters are all just hanging out there still. <laughs> right. Anyway, at the urging of his underworld buddies, Grundy rips the bars from in front of a jewelry store, all with the lantern still on his shoulder. Meanwhile, Our Man and Dr. Fate regain consciousness and surmise that Our Man's PEDs and Fate's magic interact with each other to cause an irrational hatred, and they decide to keep distance between themselves. They make their way to the crime scene where Our Man turns, takes out the gangsters. Dr. Fate goes from there to the swamp and creates a Green Lantern doppelganger, which fools Grundy into revealing that he put the real Green Lantern into the swamp to make him just like Grundy. Fate finds the deformed Lantern and changes him back because, well, magic. This, um, this enrages Grundy, but Fate hits him with a magic battering ram, followed by Owlman walloping him, followed by Fate hitting him with another spell, and Owlman giving him a diving left to the jaw, Green Lantern says that nothing will knock him out, and so he and Dr. Fate create a new globe made of half energy and half magic that will last until the end of time or the next time a writer decides to use Grundy in a story. <laughs> and they place it in eternal orbit around the Earth, and they all live happily ever after. The end. So this story is, to me, classic DC Silver Age fun. Mm-hmm. doesn't totally make sense. There's parts about it that are dumb. There are parts about it where you just got to say, yeah, yeah, I guess that could happen. But overall, I enjoyed reading it. I thought it was, like I said, again, just kind of some Silver Age dumbness. Uh, I thought the art was indicative of the house style of the day. I, I don't think, I think Anderson's art is very competent in the story. It tells the story well. The characters are easily discernible. But even though I went out of my way to pick one that he did totally on his own, I don't think this one necessarily jumps off the page and says, wow, look at what a great artist he was. And I'm kind of sorry for that. But overall, it was, it was like I said, enjoyable fun. Uh, one of my biggest criticisms is Grundy seems to kind of change in size throughout the whole story. Every time you look at him, he's a different size. I'm glad you mentioned that because it's funny, when I was uh, looking at this earlier today, it suddenly made me remember that I meant after we did our swamp creatures episode for uh, Halloween month or, you know, horror month, I meant to go back and take a look at the Solomon Grundy story prior to Superman number 301. You know, the, the story that was referenced in Superman 301 where Superman said, the last time I fought Grundy, blah, blah, blah. And that was kind of a shock to me rereading that issue. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that they'd ever met prior to this. So I did that today. I went back and I looked at that. And in that story, that was an issue of Justice League of America. It's like number 92 or 94 or something like that. Um, same thing in that. Grundy is huge. So the, the only reason I'm pointing that out is that there was some criticism of the Superman issue that we covered that I, I remember specifically there was criticism that Grundy on the cover was out of proportion. I'm thinking now, maybe he actually wasn't. Maybe he actually was supposed to be the size that we saw both on the cover and in the interior of the book. 
because clearly in this issue, he's a lot bigger than the heroes. And then again, in that issue of Justice League of America, he's again, he's a lot bigger than the characters. Now, it's not consistent necessarily how big he is compared to them, but he is much bigger than them. He's he's easily like three times the size of a regular dude. But if my memory is correct on that cover of Action Comics, Superman is actually also out of proportion with the rest of the uh, backgrounds in that cover. Arguably he is, but I always took it that Superman was actually being knocked towards us, the reader, so that's why he looks bigger, because he's supposed to be closer. Again, it's maybe a failure of the art to really convey that, that he's coming in and kind of being knocked towards us, but that's how I've always kind of took that, so... I, I don't know. I mean, again, we're not here to, to, you know, critique that issue necessarily, but I just wanted to point it out that maybe that was an unfair criticism of at least the Solomon Grundy portions of the cover and the interior of that book, that he really was supposed to be, you know, this this massive towering figure. I don't I don't remember that in later Grundy stories. I mean, he's he's a big monster, but I don't remember him being like supersized compared to everybody else. So must be they tone that down later, or I just simply never took note of it until we're, you know, going back yeah, and looking at these see, issues. I'm, I'm looking at that cover now and I don't want to belabor the cover, but he's three stories tall. Grundy, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, here, that's, I, I think that's, that's too far gone. Too much. Yeah. Okay. That's, and, and again, it's, it's, it's actually a great cover, but oh, that's, yeah. that's the one aspect of it that I just feel kind of fails a little. <laughs> Not, not that the cover isn't, you know, awesome. Anyway, back to uh, Showcase Comics. Uh, curious what you guys thought of this. I liked it, but a lot of it, you know, as you said, it is, I would say it's slightly better than average Silver Age wackiness. You know, it, and maybe I'm cutting it a lot of slack because of who the characters are that are involved. And I've come to kind of expect this sort of thing from these particular guys, but I like it. Um, I get a kick out of it because, you know, for one, it's Solomon Grundy. He's a favorite of mine. Um, Also, I get a big kick out of the fact that, you know, this is basically what this is, is this is proto brave and the bold because showcase at this time was kind of toying around, not every single issue, but it was toying around with this idea of two characters, you know, because they had also done some stories that were, I want to say it was Starman and Black Canary, I think. And I think they may have done some other characters too. I forget, but I love that one of the characters that they chose for this is our man who I, I don't, I couldn't tell you why exactly, but I have a real affinity for our man. I I like the whole idea that, you know, he, he gets, basically he gets, Superman level strength almost for but just for an hour at a time, you know, and he's got to take these pills. And I don't know at this time if they were necessarily doing the whole, you know, it's it's adversely affecting his physiology and all that thing that they would do. I don't don't think they were yet. Yeah. But that that comes about a decade later. Yeah. That eventually becomes a thing. But I like that. I always thought our man was really cool. Plus, I, I like his look. I've just always thought he had one of the cooler uh, costumes in comics. I really like that. And I like that Green Lantern's a part of this because Green Lantern is kind of the definitive uh, Solomon Grundy, um, you know, good guy, you know, the guy that fights him and everything. The only problem with that is that, you know, the cover of the book makes it sound like, you know, there's, you know, he's just going to be 
like have a cameo or something, you know, it says something to the effect of, uh, you know, special guest star, but then he's in it for a hell of a lot of the book, you know? Yeah, it, re- it really arguably, is almost the, th- the three of them. Yeah. I mean, he it's, it's arguably he has as much, maybe even more to do in the story than our man does. So it, it's kind of weird that it's touted as Dr. Fate and our man when Green Lantern's in there at, at least as much as our man is. And again, maybe even more than that. Yeah, I don't know, but he's unconscious most of the time. And turning <laughs> but he's into still a there, though. <laughs> I guess. He... <laughs> yes. yeah, just because you're sleeping doesn't mean you're not there, Bill. You know that. He's, well, Pete. Pete, was it that page 17? That it looks like he's being carried off by Alfred E. Grundy. Right. Just knock out a tooth. <laughs> right. And he's got that big, big grin. He, he does look like Alfred E. Newman there. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Yeah, look how massive he is right there. He's huge. I like Dr. Fate, but it's weird. I don't I've never known exactly why I like him because he's not he's never not ever terribly effective, but also yeah. he's to my mind, he was never properly defined as far as what exactly are his powers? What exactly is his deal? He's got the Doug Hennig. He's got a rainbow. It's magic. The magic, the rainbow curtain. I guess the same problem exists with Dr. Fate and Zatanna and and Dr. Strange and any magical character, because a lot of times their magical powers become, you know, the deus ex machina to get them out of a situation. And and all of a sudden they're doing something you never knew they could do or you, you never saw them do before. So I think when in the hands of a good writer, those magical characters are real entertaining to read. But when in, in a less skillful hand, uh, they end up screwing the whole continuity up. Yeah, I like a magical. I like a magical character when they do have to. When they write them to, when they do have to use some type of magical power that you haven't seen them use before. That there is some type of cost, either in the story or in the short term, or sometimes in the long term to the character themselves. Yeah, um, I think the best example was in recent years was when uh, World War Hulk, when Doctor Strange took on what is it uh zom mm-hmm. and you know when he became like a mindless um almost became the mindless hulk yeah yeah then he got his but hands crushed strange they would have where he needed to do something he had never done before so they'd have him go and you know go back to his sanctum sanctorum and study up on it and learn what he had to do and i was always okay with it then but just when all of a sudden he'd say oh i'm gonna turn you into glass well no <laughs> where'd that come from you know the internet. Oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wait, I got a Google spell. All right, got it. Zip. You're done. And and I mean I don't know where this whole all of a sudden that their their respective superpowers work against each other and they start to get a, a mindless hatred of each other. Well, I don't know. Fate versus Viagra. <laughs> I don't I don't know if they ever did anything with that again. Yeah, not to my Maybe mind. Maybe it was the interaction of the swamp with their two powers. Yeah, that's it. And we'll go with that. Where did, yep. did Doctor Fate made another? Did I just maybe I just went through the story too fast? Like he created his own Solomon Lantern. He no, he created an illusion of yeah. Green Lantern being there to fool Solomon Grundy into thinking. Yeah, but the Lantern was there, so that Grundy would say, "Well, how could you be here? I put you in this spot." Yeah, but then he does like this spell, and you see the illusional the Solomon Grundy Green Lantern turns into the Green Lantern. 
on page 23. Yeah, well, somehow he cures him of the Solomon yeah, Grundy. Yeah, he cured the... So he did turn into like a Solomon Grundy. Yeah, well, that was, what, that was yeah. Grundy's plan. He oh, brought him into Slaughter yeah. Swamp and he was going to become a swamp creature like him. But fate found him and was just able to kind of wave his hand and fix him because magic. Poof. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I want to know what's up with with fate. All of a sudden, is forming almost like like Green Lantern uses his ring to form like a giant fist and stuff like that. He's uh, he does that here. Fate all of a sudden forms he forms a giant fist with his fist powers of, and then he forms yeah, a fist of a like electricity or whatever magic fist. Yeah. Yeah, well, again, that's the his powers are whatever you need him to be. Yeah, that oh, I hate that. I, I really do. Yeah, I'm, I am. And then he attacked him with gumballs. <laughs> Thanks for the gumball, Doctor Fate. I like where he knocks him head over heels on uh, on page twenty four. He's doing that that flip it's like whoa. <laughs> but no, I, I I thought it was pretty good. I mean, it was a you know, it's a, it's a silver agey story, but it's fun. They yeah. make such a big deal out of this uh, construct that they, you know, they pool their their powers together and form this construct. Maybe maybe it wasn't known at this time. I forget, but Green Lantern, this Green Lantern's power ring is magically based, not like the, you know, like the other Green, you know, the Earth One Green Lantern that gets his power from the Guardians and all that. But maybe that's not known yet. Well, ho ho, you know, it's magic. Yeah. It's only magic. Never believe it's not so. I do want to know now how how Grundy gets free because obviously he does get free. No, they sure. said it would hold him eternally. Nope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The same way Amazo gets free and everybody else <laughs> who's in permanent orbit around the earth. Look how we got the beginning of this issue. Yeah, I decided I didn't want to be in there anymore, and I shook it until we fell. <laughs> Solomon Grundy, jump out the comet. So this is his next appearance is Justice League of America for. Oh, okay, yeah, I remember this one where he teams up with uh, with Blockbuster. Yeah. Which one? Justice League what? Number 46. Okay. Poor guy. I, I can see on the cover and the first bash. Uh, the, he really does want pants. <laughs> or, or at least a nice fitting suit. It's the one where they end up having a, a JLA-JSA uh, team up and they fight the, anti, the anti-matter man. I think this was right during that era when Batman 66 was on TV too because Batman looks super wonky. Yeah, I'm looking at the cover and Grundy looks pretty wonky on the cover as well. Yeah. Well, this is uh, Mike Sikowski, who I, I've never been terribly enamored of. So You know, I did catch a, uh, yeah, what is it, on page 17, there's a sock when uh, our man punches Dr. Fate right in the face. There's a, you know, the sound effect is sock. <laughs> Suck. That's okay. Sock. I forgot Suck what it page, to me. forget what page it was on, but I was noticing earlier there's a, a part where uh, fate was blasting Solomon Grundy with his powers, and it looked like he was standing there in his sock feet. So that that works. I'm not seeing what page that was now. I lost what page it was, but it was funny. Oh, 22, I think. Is, is that where he's uh, standing on the on the uh, on the shore? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and his boots are miscolored, so it looks like he's standing there in his sock feet. Yeah, where are all my super boots. It is. It is 22. Yeah. He's he's making sparkles come off of his fingers or whatever he's doing there as uh, as the Grundy Lantern marches towards him and he's standing there in his sock feet is what it looks like. That's actually pretty funny. <laughs> Are we doing grades on this one? Yeah, we might as well. Uh, a little hard for me to totally rank this one because I think I, I have to do what I've done in the past and say I need to rank this as a product of its time. Mm-hmm. 
because if I rank it just on its own, I don't think its ranking will be as high as as I think it truly deserves to be. Um, I like the cover. I like the, the the color scheme on it. I like the action shown in it. I like that it's got a scene that's actually in the book. Uh, just because there's it's a it's a little busy with the words. Just because you have to have showcase, you have to have the Super Team Supreme, Doctor Fate, and Our Man, and their names are fairly big. You have the title of the story, and you have the Green Lantern guest starring part. Uh, but I think the action does speak for itself, and I think it's pretty fairly solid. I you know if if I owned a copy of this, I would be happy to to get it. Um, I'm gonna give it a B on the cover. The interior art, while nothing spectacular. As I said, I think it does a fairly good job of telling the story. Uh, I think it, it, it moves along at a fairly brisk pace. I think the individuals are always, a, you know, you're always able to distinguish them. There is, again, some inconsistency on Grundy's size. Uh, but other than that, I think it's fairly solid. I think it would do better if there were a few more close-ups in it. Everything seems yeah. to be from a good distance, which I think takes away some of the dynamic feel of the book. So... I'm going to give the interior art a B minus. I think it's it's good, it's solid, but it could be better. Uh, and the story, it's Silver Age, it's silly. There's so many things that go on that you have to just scratch your head and wonder how the heck they came up with it. But it's just DC Silver Age silliness, and I, <laughs> I have a soft spot for that. So I'm going to give that a B as well. And overall, I'm going to give the book the book a B. You know, that's a really good observation about the lack of close-ups. I didn't catch that, but flipping back through it again, you are absolutely right. There's really not any close-ups in this. Everything got, is from a distance. That's really weird. Well, you got Grundy on page two. There's one panel that's just a close-up of his face. Hmm. That's, uh... That is really... That's different, though. Yeah, I didn't catch that until you I, said... Well, I think that's more of a Golden Age slash Silver Age thing. I think that was more common back then, or the close-ups were less common back then. Right. So, hmm. I guess as, as we do older books, we should kind of keep our eyes open for that in the future and see if we see right. that, that trend. Yeah, the only thing else that's close to a close-up kind of is like when there's a there's a shot with the gangsters getting punched and then where Our Man's punching Grundy, like towards mm-hmm. the end of the story. Right. So, yeah, Punching right. Grundy in his giant head. <laughs> Ow, my head. I like the cover, but I noticed, and it's not just the cover, but I noticed throughout the story that Our Man's cowl looks really weird. Now, like it's too big for his head? Well, it just, it, it looks, I don't know, I can't quite put my finger on it. I'm used to it looking different, and of course a lot of that comes from stuff that's much later than this, you know, with All-Star Squadron and stuff like that, but... I'm just Are you talking to... about like page five where he's taking one of his pills for the first time, where he's digging into the jar, uh, and it's back. got like it's kind of baggy out to the side? See, no, I actually think in the later books, I think it is more baggy. Mm. Yeah, it is. And I think that's that's the thing about this one that's that's a little off from that character model is this one seems to be a little bit more form fitting, and I don't think that's the hour man look. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he's off model somehow. His his. And I don't know if he's off-model. I think he's off-model for what he's going to become. <laughs> I think this is the way he looked at this time. But yeah, that, that first page just it, it looks funny with it. It's, it's just weird. It's, it's, very, um, it's very Batman-like, but it, it'd be like Batman wearing a cowl that has no ears. No, no defining thing to it. It has no ears. It has no nose piece. You know, nothing. It's just 
you know, this perfectly, you know, form fitting skull fitting cap on his head kind of thing. Uh, so it just looks a little bit funny. Plus he's, he's a little bit scrawny, but that's all right. Um, but no, I, I do really like this cover. Um, I'm hard pressed for letter grade on this. I, I think I'd have to go with like a like a C plus. There's a lot of room for improvement, and that kind of dogs the art in the interior of the book too. I think I'd have to go with a C plus because I I enjoy it. I think it's much better than average um, Silver Age art from around this same time period. But there's vast room for improvement because I know that that Anderson gets a lot better. I, you know, but I enjoy this. It's just, I, I know that he does get much better. It's funny to think of this as like early in his career or something, because by this point, you know, he'd been an artist for like 14, you know, professional comics artist for like 14 years, but relatively speaking, this is still early in his career. And, you know, his style is going to change significantly over time. So this is almost, in a weird way, this is almost like proto-Murphy Anderson. So it was interesting to look at it and see, you know, you, you can see that defining style in there, but that style is going to change as well. So, so I, I think C-plus is a, is a pretty fair grade um, on the art in this. And then the story, um, the story's a fairly standard Silver Age tale for this sort of material. So I think with that, I would go a straight you know, right down the middle of the road with a with a C on it. So overall, uh, I guess a C-plus book. But yeah, I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, that's fair. Doctor? Well, as we've I've discussed with you two gentlemen recently, I've discovered that I don't have a lot of old DC. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, some of my older Marvel is really just uh, my Avengers and uh, some, some FF, FF and some X-Men. But um, but on the DC side, it's it's not. I don't have that much. So this is this is like another new area for me to to visit. Um, the cover, uh, it's a pretty busy cover. I'll, I'll give it that. With everything going on, with you know, showcase presents the Super Team Supreme, Doctor Fate, and Our Man Solomon. You know, there's a lot going on 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 that cover. But I still like the cover. Uh, hey, and you know what? This is a scene we're gonna see in the book. That's always nice to see. But that was more indicative of books in the past than it is now. So um because of that, I, I'm I'm gonna give the I'm gonna give the cover a B. Um the story, uh, you know, it's kinda hard to follow. I, I did read it through uh like once quickly and then I was totally lost. I read it through a little bit more and then you cleared up a few things on the synopsis. Um but for the story it's you know Goofy Silver Age, so I'm gonna give it yeah, probably a C plus B minus. The art, now I did uh, look at the uh, other book that's coming, so I see where the artist is gonna go, and sh- I see a little bit here, but you know this I didn't. But this is 14 years into into his career. Yeah. Well, the, wow. The other books that we, or there were at least two other books that we saw that were 1951. So yeah. Mm. So well, I think I'm gonna give the I'm gonna give the art just. Because it's just not something. Maybe it's just because it's something I'm not used to. Um, I'm still going to give it probably a B minus. So I'll, I'll give it like a B minus C plus for the book. Right, that's Silver Age Murphy Anderson. And cool. Now maybe we could take a look at what, what would it be? Bronze Age or Modern Age? Um, right on the cusp, I, I'm gonna, isn't it? I'm going to define it as post crisis. So 
whatever the post-crisis DC is this, era. Is this po- yeah, this is post-crisis, isn't this it? This is post-crisis, yes. Um, wow. So we, we are jumping all the way to 1987. So what is that? 22 years later. So 22 years later in Murphy Anderson's career, we are going to the October cover-dated issue, October 87 cover-dated issue of Secret Origins. Secret Origins, which is uh, it was a series that I have really fond memories of. I really enjoyed and, and, and dug this tale or this uh, series a lot when this one was coming out. Now, the right, reason. So, oh, mm-hmm? quick question on Secret or- or- yeah. Origins. Now, from I did read uh, when Crisis came out, I was reading Crisis and basically Teen Titans. So that uh-huh. was really my whole DC universe right there was mm-hmm. all that I really read. Um and a little bit of Burns Superman after Crisis. Right. So Secret Origins came out because of all the changes to the Marvel, um, excuse me, to the DC universe. They were kind of redefining all the characters and giving them their new updated origins, correct? Sort of. Kind of. Sort of. I would expect, this is the funny thing about it, is that I would expect that Secret Origins had potential to confuse the hell out of new list, uh, new uh, readers, because I think that one of the possible intents of the series was exactly what you're saying, which was to introduce new readers, um, you know, new people that had joined DC because of the clean slate and the and all that with Crisis, right. to introduce them to some of these characters, and some of the characters clearly were getting a post-Crisis origin. However, it was not at all consistent because the very uh. first issue of Secret Origin gave us the origin of the Golden Age Superman, a Superman that no longer existed after Crisis. <laughs> Same thing I do believe with Batman, and I know there were other characters as well. So it can be really confusing. It, it's I, I always had a tough time figuring out exactly who was this... Uh, title really meant for and I always got kind of got the feeling that at the end of the day it was kind of a it was kind of meant for the diehards you know the diehard DC fans that could just kind of figure it out on the fly kind of thing but it was not a layman's title by any stretch okay yes there was there was also a uh, secret origins title in 1973 that ran seven issues right Mm -hmm. so this just wasn't you know something that that was brought up as of crisis i mean in fact mm-hmm. they had a uh back in 1961 they had a special giant issue of secret origins right well i so know there's th- been it's, recently... it's kind of like just one of dc's terms the secret origins thing you know yeah crisis I, became one of their terms because i remember in recent years like in the 2000s i think i think i've picked up a couple what d a uh, few dc books that said secret origins on it as, as yeah. well so, okay. So, I, I guess the one that actually kind of redefined and did all the new origins was the two part history of the DC universe that came out after Crisis. That the one right. that Perez yes, did. that one. Yeah, that definitely did. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Sorry to interrupt you there. No, no, not at all. No, it was. I it was figured kind of... maybe some of the listeners might have had the same question as well. Not right. Probably not. Thanks. <laughs> Well, the reason I chose this particular one is, uh, as I said, I sat down and and I was pouring over Mike's Amazing World, which is just, you know, again, this is our millionth plug for Mike, but I really believe in that site because it's just a, it's an awesome resource. It's just look up things like this, like somebody's entire body of work. 
So I was looking over Anderson's body of work, just trying to find like what would be like like a really good like Merv- Murphy Anderson defining comic to pick for for this episode. And was looking down the list, and I had several different things I'd picked out. And then I don't know why I went so late in his career, you know, re- relatively late, because he didn't have a whole lot of work beyond this point. But I was looking down the list, and all of a sudden, this one really jumped out to me. And I remembered part of the conversation that I'd had with him when I met him as a kid at that convention, which was... Uh, after going downstairs to the dealer's room and buying the comics that I bought to have him sign, having him ask me, hey, by the way, did you see any national comics down there? And being kind of embarrassed, you have to remember, I was only 19 or 20 years old and still, relatively speaking, still relatively new to really being a comics collector. And so I had to admit, and was really kind of embarrassed to admit to this guy, that I really didn't know what he was talking about. What what was National Comics? And National Comics was one of those, by this point, long defunct comics companies that had existed, you know, back in the Golden Age and back, you know, way back when. And it turned out that Anderson was a big fan of that particular imprint and a lot of the characters that they produced. One character in particular. That was just, you know, near and dear to him. I don't know if it's something he'd read as a kid or, or whatever, but he just had a real a- affinity for this one particular character, but also that line of comics. And that just always, for some reason, that always stuck with me. And I remember when this issue came out because I was buying Secret Origins off the rack as it was coming out brand new. And this issue came out and it really blew me away because here was that character that. Anderson had told me about that by this point I'd already fallen in love with this character too because I I can't remember where exactly I discovered him I think in Justice League if I'm not mistaken but I, I recognized him I knew who he was but here was his secret origin which I'd never read before and Anderson was the one that was doing the art on it and so that just always kind of stuck with me so when I saw it on the list I was like this is it this is the book I want to cover so again this is Secret Origins number 19 featuring the secret origin of Uncle Sam. This was actually I on was sale. Uncle ben. <laughs> Not oh, Uncle Ben. <laughs> I got the wrong freaking book. <laughs> oh, spoiler. Uncle Ben doesn't make it. <laughs> this was actually on sale three days after Independence Day in 1987. So very fitting that, the, that this was out uh, just after our nation's birthday with Uncle Sam on the cover. Now, the cover is really cool because you actually get a twofer with this issue. I'm not sure if this is the first twofer issue of Secret Origins, but it may be um, just based on uh, comments that are um, later in the in the letter column uh, portion explaining why they chose these particular stories. But anyway, you have uh, this is Secret Origins starring Uncle Sam, and the other one that's in here is The Guardian, who uh, I know is a favorite character of, uh, of Michael Bailey, our friend Michael Bailey from uh, Views from the Long Box. So what you have is more or less the classic I Want You Uncle Sam recruitment poster, and then busting through it is The Guardian. And what's really cool is that it's two artists in one image on this cover because that Uncle Sam image where he's pointing right at us, the reader, saying, I want you, that's done by Murphy Anderson. The Guardian that's busting through the poster image and coming right at us, that's actually done by Jack Kirby. So it's a really cool cover. I really like the cover on this quite a bit. 
So opening up the book, we are, of course, just covering the Uncle Sam story. The Guardian story is actually uh, done by a different team. So the team on this, uh, the writer is actually Len Wein. And he was specifically chosen for this issue because Len Wein is essentially the, the person that was responsible for Uncle Sam being brought into the quote-unquote modern DC universe. He was actually brought in back in uh, Justice League of America, I want to say issue like 108 or thereabouts, uh, in a storyline where the Justice League um, had something to do with Earth-X and all the Freedom Fighter characters that had gone over to Earth-X. Uncle Sam was among them. Anyway, so that's why he was brought on this. Murphy Anderson was brought on this because it turned out he'd actually been lobbying DC to work on this character. Again, it's, it's one of his favorites, and uh, and he'd always wanted to work on him. Well, here was his big chance. So Murphy Anderson is actually the artist on this one. He's not just the inker. He handled everything. He He's credited as the artist on this one. Uh, and then you've got uh, Milt Snap Snappin. I have no idea who this person is as the letter. Shelley Iber as the colorist. And then Roy Thomas and Greg Weisman are the editors on this. And there's a nice little footnote down at the bottom that says, uh, on the inside front page, says, uh, based on original stories by Will Eisner and Lou Fine, prime architects of the golden age of comics in National Comics 1 and 5 in 1940, and also in Uncle Sam number 1. Uncle Sam actually, for a brief time uh, way back then, uh, actually had his own title. He graduated from National Comics to his own book for, I think, like seven issues or something like that. So anyway, the uh, opening splash, I think, is just absolutely gorgeous. It's just, uh, it's uh, Anderson just at the top of his game, and you've got Uncle Sam has peeled off his overcoat, and he's rolling up his sleeves, and anytime I see images especially old war you know world war ii poster images of sam rolling up his sleeves you know somebody's about to get an ass kicking i just i love this image it's just great he's got his you know patriotic garb on and he's got his hat and he's just got this really stern determined look on his face and he's rolling up his sleeves and it's, it's just great and it says here he comes as young as the liberty bell as old as the concept of freedom the living embodiment of the american dream he is your uncle, my uncle, the uncle of those uh, who fight for freedom everywhere. He is Uncle Sam, America's premier hero. Just a great way to start the book. And we cut to, nine, uh, excuse me, not 19, 17 rather, 1777. And America is involved in the Revolutionary War with Great Britain. And these farmers <clears throat> are trying to hold off the, uh, the advancing Redcoat army. And in Pennsylvania, a supply train is headed to Valley Forge to supply uh, General Washington's troops because they know that he can't hold out much longer. But they're about to be overrun by the British. So this one guy, uh, his name is just given here simply as Samuel, he comes up with this idea that somebody's got to distract what he calls the Hessians. Uh, it's got to dis distract them and leave them on a wild wild goose chase so that the wagons can slip away and they can complete their mission to resupply Washington's troops at Valley Forge. And one of the uh, fellas he's talking to says, uh, why don't we draw straws? And uh, Sam says, no, you know, this was my idea. I'm the one that should go and do it. And they say, but it's certain death. And uh, he says, maybe so, but I ain't going alone. He goes, I'm going to bring along some protection. He reaches in the back of one of the wagons and he pulls out 
1777 version of The Stars and Stripes and essentially says that as long as he wraps himself in the Stars and Stripes, ain't nothing that can hurt me. And I, I just love this. I just think this is fantastic. So armed with nothing but the Stars and Stripes, he runs away from the wagon train and he comes across the Hessians and kind of waving the Stars and Stripes like a... Uh, almost like a matador waving a flag at a bull. He's kind of like, okay, come and get me. And he leads them a merry chase to where eventually they just get tired of him and they shoot him and they shoot him dead. And he falls face down uh, on the stars and stripes and uh, the Hessians come up and they, you know, they're just examining the body and they're going, the fool, why did he run? He died for nothing, but he didn't die for nothing because the, um, wagon train does actually make it to valley forge so even though he lost his life he completed his mission and he did what he set out to do and washington's uh, forces are are replenished so as the last rays of the setting sun uh, are going down sam the the man who's been shot he's not quite dead or or maybe he is and, and he's uh in kind of a, a netherworld phase it's not really made clear here but he looks up and he sees the rays of the setting sun and the rays to him look like the stripes on our flag and he says it's a flag our flag then we've won and he Although hears it a looks a lot like the japanese it does <laughs> yeah i was thinking the that. rising sun it does actually yes <laughs> and uh he hears a voice and a, and a stern uh, hand on his shoulder reaches down. He says, yes, Samuel, Samuel, we have. He says, thanks to the self, selfless. I can't talk tonight. He says, yes, Samuel, we have. Thanks to the selfless sacrifice of men like you. And Samuel looks up and he says, why, you are me. And he sees this patriotic figure, the figure of what would eventually become Uncle Sam, he sees this man standing over him, and the man just says, uh, so I am. He says, even as you are the indomitable spirit of America. And the figure asks him, and I, I love this part, uh, part of the story. I think this is really cool. He asks him, essentially, are you willing to give up eternal rest to help me defend our country always? And Samuel says, uh, anything for America. So he reaches out, and he takes the hand of the figure. And there's this great panel where it essentially looks like this patriotic figure is kind of pulling the soul out of Samuel's body as it lays on the ground. It, it's really cool. And it, you know, as I was reading this portion of the story today, or rather rereading this, I haven't read this in probably since it came out in 87. I was looking at this and it really reminded me very strongly. I don't know if you, either of you guys have ever seen, uh, there's an old... Uh, it's a portion of a of a Disney feature. It's an old Disney feature from the 40s. And off the top of my head, I'm forgetting which feature it was actually in. But there's a, a cartoon called um, Johnny Appleseed. Have you guys ever seen this? I think I have. And it reminded me so I much of that. Yeah. You know, which is another one of those quintessential American folklores, you know? And and in that tale, essentially this this ghostly old man comes to the the man who would eventually become known you know in folklore as Johnny Appleseed and basically comes to him and tells him you know you need to to stop what you're doing you need to go out and and follow the rest of the pioneers and plant apple trees all across America type of thing but at the end of that story you come to find out that the old man the ghost of the old man that recruited him for this mission is he himself 
which I actually ah, quantum well, leap time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of similar to what's going on here because Sam is essentially recruited by, you know, this, this ghostly figure that, that looks like him. So I thought that was really cool. Anyway, um, they essentially the, the two become one and the last panel on this page is really cool it's just uh it's all stars in the background of it uh, it looks like our flag and you've got uncle sam walking in front of it and it says and with that the dynamic star spangled figure who calls himself uncle sam strides off into the mists of history and then we follow him on this uh this one page beautiful one page splash and we get little vignettes of all of these wars that america would be involved in for basically the next uh 100 and some years and we see uncle sam um you know his spirit is there and it says uncle sam bestrides the salt soaked decks of american warships and this is in 1812 but then in 1861 He's actually stymied. He's completely helpless because this was the great civil war and it was the nation was divided and fighting itself. So Sam was actually kind of helpless during this time. And I think that's really cool. I, I love this part of the story where he couldn't he couldn't participate because it was America fighting itself. But then in uh, 1865, he's actually there when Robert E. Lee surrenders to um to grant at Appomattox so he's he's there and again it's never made really clear in the story are they talking in spirit or physically is he really there and I took it to mean in spirit that, that he was like the embodiment of the spirit of America but at this time he doesn't really have like a physical form yet that's kind of how I took it it's it's not really made clear, and I kind of like that it's not made clear. It's it's ambiguous, and in this instance, I kind of like that, that it's open to your own interpretation of, of how literal is this him appearing there. Um, he's also present in uh, 1898 um, for Teddy Roosevelt's uh, Rough Riders and their battle um, uh, at San Juan Hill for the Spanish-American War, and then in uh, 1918, He's there with the Doughboys in the trenches in France for World War One. So he's involved in all of these uh, these different conflicts. And then you turn the page. There's just a great panel of him uh, where it says, uh, "For the next few years, America is pretty much at peace." So Sam, uh, essentially, he falls asleep, and he uh, he's getting himself uh, a well-deserved rest. It says, but in Europe. An Austrian-born ex-house painter rallies the German people under his rule, and then this, of course, is the beginning of Nazi Germany. And it's really cool because it says here, you know, he proudly proclaims a Third Reich that will last a thousand years in a voice loud enough to wake the dead. And it shows in the very next panel, again, the star-filled background behind him, and it shows Sam essentially coming out of his slumber and realizing that Hitler is on the rise and this is a threat that he has to deal with. And you know, we see him donning his hat and he's off to, uh, to see what he can do about Hitler. And I like this because, you know, that was that one of those things back in World War II about, you know, that the, the sleeping giant that was America was wakened by, you know, Pearl Harbor and, and these different events that happened, you know, that and brought us essentially in drug us into World War II so whether intentional or not, I, I like the sequence of Sam dozing off, but being awakened by World War II and by Hitler. I just that, that's really cool. And again, I don't know if they meant that intentionally, but I think it's a nice parallel. 
So Sam, he sets off and uh, he's, uh, again, it says here as the spirit of America. So again, I'm taking this to mean that he's not quite physical at this portion, but it, it, it's not really made clear. It shows him actually walking through streets, but it doesn't make it clear whether he's an actual physical being yet or not. And he's drawn to this man. He's seeking someone. And he finds this man in a general store in this just, you know, middle America town. And this man is uh, basically trying to rally his fellow townsfolk to fight something called the um, the Black Legion, which kind of is holding the, the town in thrall. They're all terrified of this Black Legion. And as the, the man is giving this rallying speech and everything, Uncle Sam realizes that he's found the fellow that he's been looking for. So that night, when the fellow goes home, and this fellow's name again, much like the earlier character, his name is also Sam. And he looks a lot like Uncle Sam, except he's got a full like Ben Kenobi-style beard. And when he gets home, he's actually met by Uncle Sam. And Uncle Sam, again, much like with the dying man in the road back in 77, he basically, he recruits him. He says, you know, just take my hand, Samuel, and you'll be possessed of unimaginable power and invincibility. You'll be as strong as America's belief in you and in itself. And so Sam does take his hand and shakes his hand. And when he does, Uncle Sam at that moment disappears. So Sam... Uh, actually goes to a mirror and realizes that, hey, you know, that guy actually looked just like me. If I if I trim up my beard, I can look like him. So the following morning, he goes out amongst his town people. And now he's dressed as Uncle Sam. He's got the patriotic garb. He's got the patriotic hat. He's shaved his beard to where he just has a little pointy goatee and everything. And the people are actually inspired by this. They're rallied by this. They like his patriotic outfit. They like the attitude that he has when they ask him, you know, are you going to a parade or something? And he says, better believe I am. He says, I'm going to lead this great nation to better days and you're more than welcome to join me. And it works. The people are actually uh, inspired and rallied by this. So we cut to uh, just outside of town where this, uh, there's this uh, rally meeting in this tent and again, we have a guy that's trying to uh, rally his people to fight off the Black Legion. Well, the leaders of the Black Legion, the Black Legion, this guy named Snile and uh, his leader, uh, Scar, <laughs> a very imaginative name for this guy. He's just a Nazi with a scar on his face. He actually looks a lot like Hitler because he's got a little Hitler mustache and everything. Uh, they come to break the whole thing up and they shoot and they kill the guy for rabble rousing. And the fellow that they shoot, his grandson runs out of the tent, and he's all upset because he just watched his uh, his grandfather be murdered, runs out into the desert, and then realizes that he's lost his way. So he's lost in the desert, and as he sits down and starts crying, all of a sudden he hears somebody whistling Yankee Doodle. And he looks up, and there's Uncle Sam. And uh, I just love this panel where the, the little boy's looking up, and he sees him, and Sam just says, What are you crying about, son? He says, Tell your Uncle Sam all about it. And the, the little boy says, uh, I, don't, I don't have an uncle. And Uncle Sam, <laughs> again, I love this moment. He says, sure you do, son. He says, I'm everyone's uncle. Every red-blooded uh, American boy is my nephew. And, you know, so much of this could be taken as corny and, you know, over-the-top patriotism and all that. But that's what I like about it. It's just, this just appeals to me. It's so endearing. So while he's standing there and he's talking to this boy... The uh, 
I think his name, what did I say his name was? Snile, yeah, Snile, the, the toady Nazi guy, tries to push a boulder on Uncle Sam's head to kill him. It's like a one-ton boulder. And it smacks Sam right in the head and just cracks in two and falls. And all it does is kind of piss him off because then he looks up and he goes, okay, who did that? He says, blame fool, almost ruined my hat. But other than that, it didn't have any effect on him at all. So Snile can't believe what's happened, that uh, he pushed this boulder on him and all it did was bounce off him. So he starts running away and Sam tackles him and uh, he tackles him and he's kind of holding him up. And he's got him by the scruff of the neck and asking, him, why'd you drop that rock on me? And, the, and Snile's begging him not to hit him. And that's when the kid steps up, the little kid steps up and just kicks Snile's ass and knocks him unconscious. And Sam asks him, so why'd you do that? And he says, well, this is the murdering skunk who shot my grandpa. So at that point, Sam realizes that, uh, you know, this kid, you know, he's pretty he's pretty useful. He makes a good little sidekick. You know, so he essentially becomes, at least for this story anyway, sort of uh, Robin to Sam's Batman, essentially. So together, the two of them decide that they're going to put a stop to the Black Legion. So... The Black Legion at the same time has decided that they've had enough of these townspeople and their their constant uh, bitching and trying to rebel and everything. So they set out in tanks to basically just mow through the town, and they're they're just uh, there's they don't really seem to have much of a plan because Scar just says essentially he says uh, forward men press our advantage. He says once we're done with Glen Valley, which is the name of this town, he says we'll move on to the next town and then the next town until all of America is ours. I'm like, you've got what three tanks? I don't think that's much of a plan, but okay. Well, Sam gets in their way and he's determined to uh, to stop them and he essentially says uh, you know it's time for you guys to turn around and, and go home. He says they open up on him with the uh, with the tanks and Sam just catches the shells right out of the, the air. I love this. Catches the shells and then throws the shells back at them. Takes out all of the uh, tracks on their tanks so that they can't run away. So all the Nazis come out of the tanks to fight him and essentially between Sam and the boy and then the townspeople that are inspired by Sam, these Nazis have had it. They're, they're attacking them with hammers and rakes and pitchforks and everything else and they're just you know, going to town on these Nazis. Favorite part of the whole book here is at the very end, though, where Scar is still in one of the tanks. He tries to hightail out of there. He's he's trying to just beat feet and go. And Sam does essentially a super jump, leaps over the townspeople, lands in back of the tank, and then lifts the tank up all by himself over his head and kind of like the Hulk would do, he just shakes the tank upside down until Scar comes tumbling out of it. And once he's got Scar, he kind of, again, grabs him by the scruff of the neck and he says, there, Scar, he says, get a good look. Do you see why your sort will never win? That's the good, uh, he said, take a good long look at the spirit of America in action. And the Black Legion surrenders and the townspeople say that they have won. And the little boy just says, uh, heck, Uncle Sammy says, you're the real spirit of America. And Sam says, shucks, son, ain't nothing except what folks like you make me. But come to think of it, that makes me pretty great. And the last panel is uh, him summing all that up with the American flag blowing in the breeze behind him. And that's uh, that's the whole thing. And I got to tell you, I love this. I think this was fantastic. I don't know that this is necessarily a character that you could do a lot with 
you know, I, I can see why he's had kind of a spotty career and, and his original series didn't run very long. But if you could find a way to, you know, to, to keep up, you know, the spirit of the of the character and everything and and not let it descend into just becoming hokey or corny or whatever, you know, too much. I, I think he's a great character. I think he's he's fun. He's exciting. I mean, I know that Captain America, for example, has had uh, you know a tough time staying relevant and interesting all these years, despite the fact that he's been in fairly constant uh, publication since he you know came back in the in the sixties. I'd like to see Sam get his shot again if if they could do it similar to this again without making it too hokey. But uh, I got the biggest kick out of it. I just thought it was a hell of a lot of fun. He's he's a he's an interesting character. What did you guys think of it? I think that unfortunately, what we see as fun, they already think is too hokey. Right. So I don't think they'll ever give a book like this a chance, and and it, it irks me a little bit. Yeah. Because to me, that's the same mentality that makes them say. Uh, Superman can't say truth, justice in the American way. Right. Or, yeah. or even that Superman yeah. is too hokey, so we have to put him in a T-shirt and jeans. Right. And See, I know, I'm, I, I know I'm, I'm poking the bear there, but I agree with you on that one. So I'm not so much poking you as telling you, you know, you're not alone on that, that opinion. Right. Well, I remember um, back, back in 76, during the Bicentennial, I was uh, young, let's just say. Which, yeah. Scott, you were only see, a year. Eight, yeah, I, I don't remember. By two. I was young. Let me see. It was 1969. Right. So I was seven. I was seven. So, Scott, you yeah, were I was eight. eight. Yeah. And I was Paul eight, was, yeah. f- I was 40. Was 40, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you I remember. I was, so there you go. <laughs> but I remember the feeling of the Bicentennial. And this book kind of recaptures a little bit of that feeling yep. for me. I remember watching the tall ships coming into the New York Harbor. Paul, you might have actually seen the tall ships come into I New York. I was actually on the shore in Bensonhurst or Bay Ridge over by the Verrazano Bridge watching the tall ships. I almost thought you yeah, were going to say you were actually on the bridge of one that? of them. I, I almost thought you were going <laughs> to say I was going to say, I was the captain <laughs> of the hell. I was on the bridge. <laughs> Raise the mizzen mast. Swab the poop deck. Oh, sorry. Swab your own poop deck. That's all right. You guys have fun at my expense. Okay, Matilda, okay. no problem. <laughs> but no, this this book captures that for me. I remember that. I mean, it's 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 a very, I mean, for nineteen eighty seven, this is about this is a very nostalgic book. It's a very yes. I I I, I, I don't want to say it's it's a narrow minded view, but it's a patriotic view. It's it's a inspiring yep. that I don't think we're gonna see it again. Unfortunately, Soon. I agree. I, I, that's that's what I was saying. I, I think in comics they, they think it's too uh, it's too hokey to have this kind of thing. And yet, and yet, I think they, it's been disproven to some extent by the movie Captain America: First Avenger, because I think mm-hmm. that movie kind of has that spirit to it and proves that it could work and that an audience would enjoy it. Mm-hmm. You know, that that it's not too old fashioned for people to look at it that way, and yet they still. Uh, you know, they still they still continue to uh, push the more cynical view upon us instead of letting us be a little idealistic sometimes. So so this takes place in a small Midwestern town called Glen Valley, Midwest. Yeah. Illinois is 
Illinois is in the Midwest. So would yeah. these be Illinois Nazis? I hate <laughs> Illinois Nazis. Sorry. Is that Henry Gibson? And if anybody doesn't get that joke, too bad for you. You missed a good movie. Look it up. Now, now granted, I, I realize that the world was different back then. You know, there wasn't the internet and, and instant, you know, global communications and all that and everything. But still. In 87 or I, World I, War II? So, <laughs> No, I mean, World War Two. You know, somebody can't pick up a phone and call Washington and say, um, yeah, we kind of yeah, got that's a what Nazi I'm thinking. These guys think they're gonna they're they're gonna roll over and take over the entire country. Like you guys are out of your mind. Just, whatever, we're gonna roll from town to town. Yeah, shut up. See Kyle. Well, even even before that, just the fact that they they're holding this entire town. Well, that too. I don't understand. Yeah, way. nope. They're, they're, and all we see. Until the very end of the story, all we see is two Nazis. I don't know. And later, it does show that there's actually like a whole battalion of them and everything. But still, I want to know how are they holding this entire town in their like sway? How I are they telling tell anybody? From I could tell you so easily. I could tell you so easily, but we would have to bleep it out. So I won't even tell you because <laughs> <laughs> it would just piss off somebody listening. So okay, maybe me. <laughs> oh no, no! It's called the Second Amendment, and people. Never mind. See, I'm not even going to say anything else. <laughs> I'll, I'll just bleep that out. <laughs> now that's true. You know, now that you mentioned that, it's true because when they come in and they take them out at the end of the story, none of the townspeople have weapons or, or guns, firearms. You're right. They're all using. Mm. Holy cow! That one guy's about. Look at look at page seventeen. I just caught this. Page seventeen. Oh, pickaxe over his head. He's got the pickaxe. He's about to put a pickaxe in that Nazi's head. Oh, that's brutal. Oh, that that's wrong? awesome. <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't know. I guess not. He's a Nazi. Deserves it. Well, I mean, hey. there's one guy who's got a, sl- you know, like a little mini Mjolnir right. the left. <laughs> hey, just remember, people don't kill people. Picks at pickaxes kill people. What is that lady hitting the hitting the guy over the head? I think with? it's a shovel. Is it Maybe a shovel? It's a, actually, it's a. It's a it's a scythe and the blade's buried in the back of his neck. That's why he's oh. <laughs> sorry. Don't want to say that out loud. Sorry about that. No, she just might. came in from you know shearing the you know some she was cutting some corn down in the field. You know. I love this part though. That one guy's got a rake. That guy's got a, a claw hammer. Murray. That's brutal. Murray claw hammer. <laughs> Murray claw hammer. I do love the part where. Uh, or Sam lifts the tank over his head. Well, like two, like, and Sam's t- taking two guys and smashing their heads together due to the fact that he can pick up a tank. <laughs> Those guys are dead unless he's kind of controlling his uh, snocking their heads together. I see their yeah. brains are mush. I, I would love to see though if, if somebody could could make a concept like this work. You know what I mean? Because the, the problem is, I know that there was that, uh, what was it, Alex Ross, I think it was a two-issue uh, oh, no, no. there years ago, but something like that, the problem with something like that was that it was it was written from a very uh, liberal mindset, and so they, they weren't going for the rah-rah patriotism aspect of it, and I, I think that's why, it, it, plus it wasn't taking place in, you know, in continuity in the actual uh marvel or you know dc universe or anything like that but i'm i'm sorry and and any of our liberal friends you know what i still enjoy you as friends but <laughs> a book about uncle sam that's going to be written from the i hate america point of view yeah is not for me 
Yeah. End of story. Exactly. I'm not going to make the statement any further than that because Uncle, you know, uh, Alex Ross is not he he's not what I would call a uh, a rah rah patriot. Well, that's I mean that's the thing with with comics these days. Who would you get? Because it's been my experience, especially especially modern day, that there's you know it, it's predominantly liberal attitudes working in comics. So you know I, I wonder. You know, if you if you were really going to give this a go, because I know that there have been uh, attempts the... to revive the character. There was a Freedom Fighters um, comic right around the time of uh, what was it, Infinite Crisis, and all that. I never read it. I, I heard that it was not very good, but because in Infinite Crisis, uh, the Freedom for the original Freedom Fighters, most of them were killed, but then they yeah. ended up. There was a, a new team formed post-Infinite Crisis, but again, I, I never read any of it. I didn't care for the art style, and I heard it was not very good. But essentially, if I'm not mistaken, I think Sam was the only one that was an original member because essentially they can't kill him. You can you can wound him and you can hurt him. And I think, if I'm remembering this, my stories correctly, I think that he had lost power because of the weakening of the nation, essentially, but they couldn't a- actually kill him because he is the living spirit of the country but all you know the other guys were all dead the human bomb and all those other guys they were all murdered during infinite crisis so there was a new team but it's i don't know i might have to check it out one day just so i could be a little more informed about it but i i heard it was not very good i think part was that they weren't going for this you know they weren't going for that you know that feeling of rah-rah patriotism you know yeah well you know and and my thought is and again i i don't want to disrespect other people's point of views i really don't but i don't think you should use the character of uncle sam if you're trying to give a non-patriotic message oh definitely so you know if you if you feel that the country is doing poorly or that there's something going wrong or that you don't love america or whatever you're entitled to your point of view and i'm not going to debate with you despite my difference of opinion uh, but I don't think you should be using the character of Uncle Sam to demonstrate that. Right. I, I think, you know, the, the the character is what it is. It's a pretty simple concept. He's the living embodiment of the spirit of America. Mm-hmm. And and if, if you don't feel the spirit of America, you know, use a different character. You go, right. go get Captain Nazi. <laughs> I wonder if Captain Nazi and Uncle Sam have ever fought. That'd be pretty damn cool. Uh, that, now, that's a... That's a tussle I'd like to see right there. I would there. like to see Uncle Sam as done by Ethan Van Skyver, who is a more... Yeah, I was going to say that Ethan Van Skyver is more even uh, a... Billy Tucci, because those, those yeah. are two gentlemen who share a more conservative point of view. You know what? Next time I mm-hmm. see Tucci at something, I might see if I could get him to, to do me an Uncle Sam sketch. I bet you that'd be pretty damn cool. Yeah, I bet you would. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. I mean, Sam, you know, he's been around because, you know, there was the, the 70s Freedom Fighters series that has its ups and downs. Um, my, my biggest problem with that is um, it was generally the art was just kind of bland, but the stories were pretty good. Um, and I know he was, you know, he's been here the, here and there. He popped, you know, would pop up, you know, here and there in the, in the it was essentially in the pre-crisis era you know because they again you know the freedom fighter freedom fighters are brought back in uh justice league by len ween i'm trying to remember what year that was it had to be like 72 i'm gonna guess something like that i don't know 
I'm I'm just going strictly off the top of my head, but uh, I know that they would be used, you know, here and there. And then, of course, uh, they were used to pretty decent effects in uh, All Star Squadron when Roy Thomas was, um, you know, basically laying out the history of all those characters and everything, and uh, you know, trying to kind of trying to retcon a, a linear timeline for all those Golden Age characters and their activities in, in World War II, because he actually and we got to see the story um, in All-Star Squadron before, you know, Christ's on Infinite Earths happened. And we got to see the story where Sam formed the Freedom Fighters and they went off to liberate Earth-X. Because Earth-X was the Earth where it was a parallel Earth, but it was the Earth where the Nazis actually won World War II because they didn't have any superheroes of their own. So Sam formed a team to go there to basically fight for that Earth. Because they didn't have anybody to do it for them. And uh, and then, of course, not long after that is when Crisis on Infinite Earths happened and it rearranged the whole timeline. So in the rearranged timeline, there were never any parallel Earths. So where the hell did Sam and his team run off to? And that, off the top of my head, I can't remember if that was ever resolved. You know What became of, uh, of Sam and his team? I want to say that Sam and his team initially in... All-Star Squadron were were shown to have basically taken the place of the Golden Age characters that were wiped away that now no longer exist, you know, like Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman and all those characters that were wiped out because they were duplicates. Um, you know, now that there was one timeline where there never were two Superman and two Batman and all that, for a time, I think Sam and, and his people became the placeholders of those characters in the golden age timeline. But whether that stuck or not, I don't know because then not long after that, you got young all stars, which was saying that that's what they were doing with that series with the, these were the new, essentially these were the new placeholders for the golden age, Superman, Batman, etc. So I don't know. The whole timeline gets fuzzy to me at that point, you know, for Sam and his, and his team. I, I really, I just can't remember how it all played out, but Again, it's a character I've always uh, had a real affinity for. I, I like this guy a lot, and I just thought this was a damn fun story. I, I really, really enjoyed it. I'd be curious one day to go back and check out some of the, the actual Golden Age adventures that this uh, origin tale was uh, taken from and see if they're you know half as good as this, because if they are, I'd, I'd probably get a kick out of it. Any other thoughts on this one? Uh, just the only thought that I wanted to bring up is I think... Part of the uh, the art, the stylistic nature of the art in this book, I think, is mm-hmm. to some extent an effort by uh, by Anderson to try and emulate uh, Will Eisner. Mm. I can see that. Yeah, you know, especially with it being, uh, you know, there's there's where is it? Uh, based on the original stories by Will Eisner and Lou Fine, prime architects of the Golden Age of Comics, mm-hmm. in National Comics number one. Was it one and five, or is it one eighty? Yeah, one and five, and Uncle uh, Sam number one. Uh, Sam so that's four. the National Comics that you were talking about. Right? Yeah. So I, I think I think that's what he's doing here, and I think he's showing a little versatility as an artist, right? In doing that and showing that you know he wasn't just you know the the house artist or the uh, you know the Kurt Swan complimenter. So right. I, I thought that was worth mentioning. Anyway. Uh, well, but I, I I agree with you. I really like this book. I like the spirit it, it, it evoked, and it makes me a little sad to think that people wouldn't like it. Yeah, 
I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and give this one some grades um, since this was my book. Um, the cover's tough to grade because I, I, I love it. I think it's a fantastic cover. However, it is really um, Anderson just doing his riff on the classic Uncle Sam, I want you recruitment poster. And uh, and then you've got Kirby's uh, Guardian smashing through it. I don't I don't know. I, I'm well, tempted to just go ahead and give it. What's that? What are you going to say? Well, Bill? going by, I know how Paul feels about covers that just have a blank background. So I mean, for this, I, I would just look. I mean, I think I think you're about about to say it. I would just look at the drawing of Uncle Sam itself and not really worry about the rest of the cover. Okay. Um, I mean, because because we didn't look at the rest of the book anyway. Right, that's true. I mean, but but if you want to go with the cover, I don't know, maybe two two grades, like the cover as a whole and just Anderson's artwork. Right. Um, I don't know. I, I, one way or the other, I, I think it's I think it's an A cover. I really enjoy it. You know, whether you you were just looking at just his portion or looking at the cover as a whole, I, I dig it. I think it's really cool. It, it does have a lot of negative space because you know only the figure of Sam and. Uh, and the guardian are, are colored. Everything else is just, you know, it's just stark white. Well, um, although the guardian is ripping through the stark white paper though. Right. There's yeah. like some type of active background behind that. So, right. But no, I, I think it's cool. I think it's dynamic for that. So yeah, I like it. I think it's a, I think it's a really good cover. I like this. It's eye catching. And I like that, uh, uncle Sam has his own logo and his logo is, you know, the, the stars and stripes. I think that's really cool because I'd be tempted to make, you know, if, if I were making the, the artistic decisions on this, I'd be tempted to make that the background is the, the stars and stripes. But then if they did that, then would it be too busy? Would, would you not really be able to make out, you know, the logos properly and all that? So they probably made it, made a good decision actually making it white in the background um interior art i love it i really do i think the interior art is fantastic um i've i've always uh really enjoyed uh murphy anderson's art but here's where he just gets a chance to just show off you know what i mean and you can tell that he loves this character you can tell that he's having a blast drawing this and it really comes through uh, in the artwork the only uh the only criticisms I would have, and it would be super minor criticisms, is I'm not sure if the Nazis are supposed to be cartoony. I'm going to assume that they are, but I noticed that the faces of the of the um, the Nazis themselves, like for example, if you look at Hitler's face on page six, that almost looks like Kurt Schaffenberger to me, and uh, and that's kind of weird because I, he's just not an artist that I think has a style anywhere anywhere similar to murphy anderson yet i can't help but think that that's what hitler looks like right there he looks like he's out of an issue of lois lane or something it's actually really kind of strange um i never really noticed this before but with this issue it really struck me that uh that anderson and russ heath are a lot alike and uh heath was one of those artists that i didn't think much of when i was a kid but then the more stuff of his I've seen over the years, the more I, I've come to really like him. And uh, there's several uh, parts of this issue that really do look like, a lot like Russ Heath to me. Um, but yeah, I, I, I love the uh, the art through the whole story. I'm, I'm flipping back through it real quick just to see if was there any panels or any part of it that I 
I didn't like or maybe thought the anatomy looked weird or anything, but there's not. Um, and there's a lot of it that I genuinely thrill to, especially when uh, when Sam does the super heroic stuff. You know, like picking up the tank was just fantastic. I love that. I, 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 can, just... I, can give you, I can give you one panel that I look at that I'm not crazy about, and it's the, the bottom right corner on page 16. 16? Bottom right corner? Mm-hmm. Where he's fighting the two Nazis? Yeah. Just oh, positioning of his body there. It looks but like you know, he's dancing. I, he, you're right, <laughs> but I'd swear that there's actually a political cartoon, like an Uncle Sam I political cartoon. I think you're right. That, that could well be. Yeah. Because yeah. I noticed looking that. Up Uncle Sam, uh, I, I got a, another note to say about Uncle Sam when, I, when it gets to my grade. But yeah, I'll keep looking to see if I see something like that. That was the I one noticed, that stood out to me. It almost looked like a Mad Magazine type panel. Yeah. But see, I, I noticed that in a couple of the of the poses with Sam, I I don't know this for a fact, but I strongly suspect that several of his action poses are actually taken from um, political cartoons. Because of course he he has a very unique origin that we didn't really talk much about. the The character of Uncle Sam himself started as a political cartoon. And then here is DC making him into a superhero, but that—that's his actual origins. I mean, is—is is that he began um, in newspapers as, uh, you know, as just a political cartoon, and I, I think that's really cool. So I, I know that some of these, uh, some of these poses and some of these panels, I'd swear I've seen them before uh, in I don't know a history book or something like that. So I suspect that one that you're looking at that lo- that does look a little wonky. I think that that's actually taken from something historical out of a newspaper or something. But we'll, well see if I can... was looking at the original I want you poster mm-hmm. or or a representation of it, and it makes sense now with the cover because that in the in that poster, you know, I want you for the U.S. Army. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you look on the cover of this book, um, the Guardians bursting through the want you. So this is this. It would be a white back. There is a white background on the original poster, although mm-hmm. his hat's different. The hat does not have the red stripes. It has white stripes. It's just solid white in the original poster. But it does have want you below Sam. So that's why there's white in the backgrounds because he's breaking through the original. Yo, it's representing him going through the original Uncle Sam poster. That's cool. That is really cool. Yeah, you know, as far as the interior art goes, um, I think I'm. I think I'm gonna go. Uh, I think I'm gonna go uh, an A minus on it, only because the Nazis are a little cartoony, and that might be intentional. I'm not really sure. Maybe he was trying to make Capture it. The- well, he's try- if he's trying to capture the the feel of the books of the forties. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but that that's really the only criticism I've got is that the Nazis just look a little too cartoony. But beyond that, I think the art's just absolutely fantastic. I really do. And now, I, uh, I swear I've seen that one where he's punching somebody and got somebody else. Is one where he's like punching Hitler and he's got like a Japanese, uh, like the Japanese emperor underneath his arm or something like that. Right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think look. I've seen that before too. You guys do your grades. I'll, I'll dig around and see if I can if I can find anything. Mm. Um as far as the story goes, uh 
I, I think it's really good. It's tough to grade the story fairly because I've never read the original source material, so I'm not sure you know how it's all pieced together. But judging it just strictly as what's presented here, um, I really love it. My my only criticism of it, and again, it's probably just a product of its time, but this whole idea that this Nazi battalion is active and operating in America and nobody knows about it and they're able to hold this entire town under their sway is, is a little bit silly, but, uh, but it makes for some damn good action later in the story. So, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to overlook that. Uh, I enjoy it. I think it's really good. So I'm going to give the, uh, I think I'll give the story a straight up a as well. I think it's a good story. I love the origin. I love that. Uh, it's all tied to, the origins of the country. I love that it starts in 1777 with the, with the revolutionary war. And, uh, and we see him ever present, you know, in the, in the battles and the trials and tribulations of the country. I think that's fantastic. So can you see that middle section where that one page where he's standing there, you know, 1812, like this, this whole thing could be done from back in the seventies, eighties on schoolhouse rock. Saturday morning cartoons. <laughs> yeah. And that, I know people may not like it when we compare certain artists to other artists. Doesn't that page, do, that looks, does it look like John Byrne could have drawn that Uncle Sam right there a little which, bit? Which one? The one where they're in 1812 and 1861 uh, and 1865. Yeah. The the Uncle Sam that is stands on the left of the page that encompasses the whole page. The face looks a little burnish to me. Yeah. Yeah, he does. Yeah, I, I, like I see some similarities to Burn overall, and not not because I would mix their art up, but just kind of the clean style of the way it's drawn, and a little bit of the uh, the minimalist nature of some of the work. Mm. That reminds me a little bit of Burn. And yeah, because you know what, this does look. Uh, Uncle Sam does look a little bit in some instances like Burns Nathaniel Richards that you'll see in his FF run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I it's one, one of the aspects of Burns' clean style that I've always loved so much is that he he doesn't he he never seems to overburden it with too much shadowing or too much uh, just extraneous lines that have nothing to do with the picture. And that's that's what I mean by minimalist. And I see I see that in here too. It's not a lack of backgrounds. It's not a lack of detail. It's just a lack of unnecessary lines, if that makes sense. Like a. Uh, Rob Liefeld, if you if you see one of his faces, there's always lines in there that have no reason to be there. Super crow's feet. Yeah, but they're not even crow's feet. They're just lines. <laughs> Poor Rob Liefeld. Well, you know, it is what it is. So uh, I guess I'll, I'll give my rating on this now. Sure. Uh, Uncle Sam on the cover reminds me of Gene Colan. Hmm. And you, you said people don't like when we compare them to other artists. I didn't realize that. People really don't. Well, I, I, I never I, heard anybody complain about that. I don't know. I, 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 I well, maybe I'm just projecting because I, I don't seem to have the re- maybe it seems like I always compare to Neil Adams, John Byrne, George Perez. Uh, I mean, I don't have the repertoire, the, the recognizability of certain artists like you guys, too. And I, I know it seems like I always go, oh, it looks like uh, George, George Perez. Oh, it looks like John Byrne, you know. No, no, I, 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 if if I thought you were overreaching on some of your comparisons, I would, I would, you know, I wouldn't spare your feelings. Oh, you never do. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, I like it. I like the way this is drawn. Uh, the white background doesn't really bother me because there's so much color in the titles and Uncle Sam and the Guardian and and 
there's enough color to get around and it does the white background doesn't bother me and especially like you said it, it's it's an uncle sam i want you poster so uh there's there's no reason why it wouldn't be white mm. uh the interior oh i've said i liked it but i never actually graded it uh i would give the cover a b plus and i would do that overall i, I like both images i like the uh the murphy anderson uncle sam a lot and i like the the jack kirby guardian a lot as well so i'm 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 going to just say, you know, solid B on the cover from from both ends. The interior art is really, really solid. It's very clean. It's it's some of the images are striking. Some of the images look like they could easily be posters. Uh, the Nazis don't bother me at all, and I, I think I'm I'm going with your thought that he's kind of drawing them in the cartoonish way of of the earlier stories a little bit. Uh, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna accept your uh, explanation that kind of the Tra-la-la dancing Uncle Sam is uh, <laughs> is recreating a, a political cartoon. So uh, I'm going to give the interior art an A. I, I really like it. Uh, the story is a little wonky, a little silly at times, and definitely a little corny. Uh, but I really like that as well. And I'm going to say, uh, you know, your criticism of the uh, of the, the Nazis living in middle America, okay, but still kind of just... A really enjoyable story, so I'm going to say a solid B plus on the uh, story and give the overall book a B plus. Sweet, William. Well, I have to give. Uh, well, one, I have to give the interior art. Well, I just have to give Un- Uncle Sam just an A plus anyway because he has white leggings, and I have white leggings just like those two from when I was in the military. So bravo to Uncle Sam. <laughs> he and I have something in common. Because when I was on the color guard, I had white leggings just like those. You should so, be so proud. Yeah. I know all men that wear leggings are usually proud about it. That's right. I wear those and nothing else to get the mail. Uh, you already told me you wear your, your box of briefs to go out and get the mail. No, that's just to get something an, out of the van. An image just, that will haunt me for the rest of my I existence. I just run out naked in my leggings to go get the mail or to you know put the trash out. Yeah. Like, as the trash guy's coming down the street. And I'm, all right, all right. Read your book. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> no, I really don't go out naked. Anyway, uh, the cover, with or without Uncle Sam, um, I mean, once I figured out that it was a poster, that, that kind of just evened it out for me. So um, I'll give the cover, I'll give it a B-plus as well. And on the interior, it's just so, everything's so clean and and it just flows so, so good. And, and with, you know, we get the quick little history lesson and how, and, you know, uncle Sam becomes Rip Van Winkle for a little while before world war two. And, uh, it's just, yeah, I have no, no, no qualms with the art at all either. Um, so with that, I'm just going to give, give it an, an A as well. And the, the same thing here for the nostalgia feeling, I mean, yeah, the story's a little silly, but but it's 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 fun. I have no problem with it all, and I have to give it an A as well. So, that I guess that makes it an A minus book for me as well. All right, good deal. Uh, any closing thoughts on Mr. Anderson? Mr. Anderson, welcome yeah. back. Definitely gonna miss him. Definitely gonna miss him. Yeah, I'm happy to have gotten through the entire episode without actually calling him Murphy Brown. <laughs> But yeah, I, I you know, again, I, I've been familiar with Murphy Anderson. His his 
he's always kind of just been there. He's never been anybody I focused on. But in prepping to do today's episode, I paid a little bit more close attention to him than I had in the past. And I really do appreciate the work that he did. And uh, I'd say thank you for the uh, thank you for the great work. And I, I guess nobody else has anything to add, so I'll just cut it out there. I think we got the winner. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to two true freaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the two true site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Yes, I've been eating a lot of ice and I ate too much ice and it numbed my mouth. That's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. I'm sorry, I will not chew ice before I do my book anymore. Because it just is terrible. <laughs>